Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with USD law professor Hannah Hoxgard about her research into South Dakota's early homestead history. Professor Hoxgard, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm enjoying the sun shining after several days of very cold weather here. You're a professor here at the USD School of Law. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I grew up in Yankton, uh, graduated from Yankton High School in 2006. I went to University of Kentucky, and then I went to law school at University of California, Berkeley. I was lucky enough to return home to South Dakota after law school, and I clerked for a federal district court judge for Baird Lang and Pierre. And then I moved up to Fargo for three years to clerk for another federal judge before returning to South Dakota for this job. So, you know, first of all, why did you go uh, to Kentucky for college? So I have family connections in Kentucky. I was actually born in Kentucky. That's where my mom is from, although my dad is a South Dakotan, and I have several generations of South Dakota ancestors on my dad's side. So Kentucky was a natural fit for me because I was familiar with it. And I also was excited because I got to do policy debate on the intercollegiate policy debate squad at Kentucky. Now, breaking the wall of the podcast here, that's where we sort of met was the high school debate days. Why, I guess, uh, did you like debate? What did debate do you think did, did for you? I think debate did a lot for me. I was a pretty shy kid, and debate allowed me the opportunity to get up and speak and do it uninterrupted, right, because you have set speech times. And I felt, after doing debate a little bit, that I was sort of more comfortable speaking. And I think beyond that, it also taught me a lot about current issues in the world, and it taught me a lot about how one forms arguments and thinks about issues. So for me, it was an incredibly powerful um, experience to have in high school. So did you then know, like in high school, that you wanted to pursue the law school route, or is that something that you sort of found in college even? So I would say that even as a little kid, I always thought that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, And for me, the question then was really, what do I want to teach? What level should it be at? And I think high school debate was probably the first, my first real introduction to the law, right? My parents are not lawyers. I don't have, um, I didn't grow up in a home where lawyers were around, but I learned about the law and debate, especially when I got to college and started taking political science type courses. I learned enough that I thought, hey, this is what interests me is going to keep me engaged and that's what I want to teach. So at the end of undergraduate, I debated a little whether to go to a PhD program, but ultimately I just felt like the law was what I wanted to do. And so I decided on law school. Well, then what interested you, I guess, um, or or what led you to uh, the University of California, Berkeley for law school? So a couple of things led me to choose Berkeley. I um, always felt like I'd want to come home to South Dakota ultimately. And keeping that in the back of my mind when I was choosing law schools, I felt like I wanted to kind of go explore a different part of the country. Berkeley, of course, was very different than 
uh, Lexington, Kentucky or Yankton, South Dakota. So it was a good cultural experience for me to go somewhere else. It also cemented my interest in returning to South Dakota afterwards. The other unique thing for me with Berkeley is that I've actually got a sister living in San Francisco. And so it was only going to be a short bus or train ride away from having family nearby and having that support structure in law school was really, really wonderful for me. Did you generally like Berkeley or what was, I guess, what was your thought of that area of the country? I enjoyed it. Um, There's a lot of fun stuff, right? There's a lot of fun food. There's a ton of stuff happening. The campus is absolutely gorgeous. There's also some downsides to being in that populated of an area, right? Life's a little bit uh, more difficult, a little bit more difficult to get around. I got to experience my first earthquake, which is kind of startling if you've grown up where you don't experience earthquakes. I will say for me, the best part about Berkeley was the law school environment is I think that wherever you go to law school, you want to be comfortable and you want to feel like you are just growing as a person and you're developing your skills. And I got that at Berkeley for me. And of course, that's something I hope to give to my students at South Dakota, right, is there's big value to how you interact with professors in law school and the things you learn. And and for me, Berkeley was a really good fit. So you you mentioned that you would um, end up clerking for a couple of different judges um, on the federal level. What, what was that experience like? What does a law clerk do? Law clerks get to do some really awesome stuff. It is a wonderful job for a new attorney to have. So with law clerks, you're normally hired for a short time period. So I spent one year in peer. And whatever judge you clerk for, you get to walk in the door and you get assignments from them, right? You are helping the judge. You do research for them. You do prep work for them. You do writing and editing. And truly, I don't think there's a better way to learn than being to sort of being on the judge's side for a year and watching litigation and learning what's good and bad about different types of lawyering. And so when you um, mentioned that you would end up going up to the Fargo area um, to clerk for three years on the federal level, who, who is that with? So that was with um, Judge Kermit Bai, who was on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. So that courtship was a little different. So in Pierre, it was a trial court, right? So we had trials. We had a lot of hearings. Up in uh, Fargo, because it was an appellate court, we actually did a lot more studying in our offices and reading and writing. And then once a month, we would travel to hear oral arguments and appeals. But ultimately, it was the same job, right? I was doing research and writing for the judge to make his life easier as he was prepping and getting ready for oral arguments. And then after oral arguments, getting ready to write those opinions or write dissents or concurrences or whatever he thought uh, was appropriate based on the case. So you mentioned earlier that you always kind of knew you wanted to be a teacher. Then how did how did you make your way then back to sort of the Yankton Vermilion area and ultimately become a professor at the USD School or Knudsen School of Law? I mean, was that kind of happenstance or was it uh, a goal? I mean, how, how did that all transpire? So it was, I think, both happenstance and a goal. I 
was my main area of interest is in family law. And of course, at a school, most law schools have only one family law professor, right? So you know that you have to have perfect timing to get in. And after I'd been up at the Eighth Circuit in Fargo for three years, the family law professor at South Dakota, who had been here for years and was well-loved and well-respected, announced his retirement. And it's sort of one of those, there's no time like the present. So I applied, and I was lucky enough to get the job offer. And so when, when did you come back to USD? So I started as an, uh, as an assistant professor in the fall of 2016. 2015, okay. Um, well, and, and obviously you talked about interacting with students and that being a, a big part of what you do. You, you also um, do a lot of academic research, correct? Yeah, so the job, of course, is teaching. It's a lot of service work, but it's also writing and researching in the area of law. So that is a very important part of my job and, and something that I really enjoy doing and I appreciate about this position. What are the, I guess, kind of like main you know areas of, of research that you kind of focus in on? So I would say there's a one big umbrella, which is I am really interested in rural issues. So I'm interested in how the law operates in rural places and how rural people interact with the law. Under that umbrella, I would divide it into two different types of research. So on the one hand, I write about the rural lawyer shortage because there is a substantial uh, shortage of lawyers in, in a lot of rural areas. And South Dakota is not exempt from that, although South Dakota has in many ways been the national leader in solving this rural lawyer shortage. But that's one part of what I do, and I like to say that um, what I'm trying to do with the research and writing there is give voice to the rural lawyers and to the policymakers who are trying to fix this problem. And so that research and writing tends to be very policy-oriented. The other sort of bucket of research I do is related to family law and property. So I'm most interested in studying how families in rural areas whether families in the sense of parents and children or spouses, right, husbands and wives, how they own and manage property. So that's kind of the second and probably more academic side of what I'm doing. Um, you know, recently you and I um, were able to, uh, or, I, or I guess I was able to kind of assist you with the article that you were finishing and finalizing um, and, and submitting for publication. And it was on kind of the intersection, I would say, of, um, you know, like women's rights and, you know, America's homestead days. Yeah, it, it, Could you just tell us a little bit about maybe some of the papers that you've written um, on that area and why, I guess, you're particularly interested in kind of that area of research? Yeah, so that's, one of the big things I'm doing right now is trying to study and analyze the laws that were related to female homesteaders. So I will back up to sort of, well, why am I interested in this topic anyway? As a kid, I loved Laura Ingalls Wilder. I think many of us who grew up in South Dakota, right, you grow up knowing about her and reading her books, and um, that was sort of one of the things I was into as a kid. As I transitioned to being an adult, I continued to buy and read all the books I could find about female homesteaders in American history. And I read a lot of those books, and they're wonderful, and historians are doing great work at cataloging the lives of female homesteaders. But I realized that 
throughout all of this literature, we were missing an emphasis on the law itself. Right, because it's interesting in this time and place in American history that women were even allowed to homestead at all. And I think the reason that uh, this stands out and seems so important is that in Canada, the homestead law said only men can do it. So there are truthfully no female homesteaders in Canada. You cross over their southern border, right, into the United States, and our law allowed women to homestead and get that land from the government. And so we have a rich history of female homesteaders in the United States that only exists because for some reason Congress decided to let women participate. Well, I wonder if you could help us unpack that. How did this, like, come to pass? I mean, that's what that's what you know surprised me when— I initially read your paper. It was just like, you know, we're talking about unmarried women in a time period where they like could not vote and would not be able to exercise the right to vote for a long time. Right. And yet they were sort of empowered with, you know, the ability to go homestead. How did this actually happen? Right. So just a sort of a timeline here, right? Women get the right to vote in 1920, but we're talking about a lot earlier. So the Homestead Act is passed in 1862. Uh, During the Lincoln presidency, the Civil War is happening, but it's been debated for basically the entirety of American history, right? Is this decision of we as a federal government have a lot of land and how are we going to distribute it? Are we going to sell it? Are we going to give it away? It's not until 1862 that we come up with a policy of, yep, we're going to give it away. That's when we get our homestead active, right? And you get 160 acres per person. If you go up and, you know, you, you improve the land and you cultivate it, et cetera. So I would say that the real debates about the homestead act last about 20 years before its passage. So in my paper, what I actually did was I went back to 1843 and I started reading all of the congressional records about any time Congress, whether the House or the Senate, is debating a homestead bill. And I looked for any discussion that they had of including women. So it was a lot of reading. It's a lot of history. But I think the amazing thing about it is Congress keeps circling back of should we include women or should we not? Right. Should we only limit it to men or should we include women? Should we only limit it to married men? What about single men? Right. So there's a debate that goes on for 20 years before at the end of the day, Congress ultimately says, yep, we will include unmarried women as well. Well, and part of what I loved about what your research um, kind of uncovered was like the reaction on these floor debates, the the idea, just even the idea of having, you know, unmarried um, women homestead kind of elicited would like elicit laughter. Right. Like how, how did that then come from this like proposal where in some situations, you know, try, you know, trying to decipher what was going on. It seemed like it was maybe even like a joke sometimes to then being like a very serious policy proposal that would come to pass. Like how, how did that evolve? Right. So I think that's kind of the big mystery of this. So in reading those debates, I counted five times where a single senator or representative made a proposal that said, hey, let's include single women. And the congressional record officially reflects laughter. And that's pretty amazing, right? Five times somebody stood up and said, hey, let's include single women. And five times 
the reaction was laughter. So I think that a couple of things come into play here of, well, if it was such a joke, how then at the end did we end up including single women? I think, honestly, it's the persistence of a few legislators who just continue to introduce bills that were worded broadly and included single women. A couple of times during this 20-year period, a legislator would stand up and made an equality argument, right? And they would say something like, look, if unmarried men are going to get homesteads, unmarried women should get them too, right? That's that's only the fair thing to do. Those equality-type arguments are few and far between. What we see more of is legislators saying, look, the goal with the Homestead Act is to create communities on the frontier. And in order to have strong communities, the reality is you have to have women because you need women to marry and have children. And women are good at civic engagement and they're good at building church communities. And Congress just thought that having women on the frontier would be a civilizing force. So it seems like ultimately Congress may have laughed about the idea of really giving these land rights to single women because that was pretty odd for the time but congress ultimately wanted to ensure that we had sufficient women on the frontier to build real communities what were, i mean as you have i guess kind of investigated and researched um this time period i mean what, what do you think were the implications of that decision i mean what what did that do to I guess, the American frontier. So I think that there's a few ways to respond to that. I mean, one is that people make the argument, and I and I think they're right here, is that when we gave women the right to homestead and we gave women property rights and sort of right economic control of their livelihoods, because if a woman owns 160 acres of land, she can decide how to farm it, if she wants to rent it out, et cetera. What we saw was women developing a level of independence that maybe they did not have in the eastern part of the country. In that sense, it's not terribly surprising that suffrage, right, the women's right to vote, started first on the western frontier where perhaps women were already seen as a civilizing force. And so they were seen as a positive and they should be given the right to vote. And also they had sort of come to expect some level of independence and um, viewed themselves as, as important community members. And I think that ultimately one takeaway is it probably did influence sort of a, a more liberal version of women's rights that allowed women to officially partake in the government by voting. You mentioned how, um, you know, like the women's suffrage movement kind of sprang forth from, you know, the West. And you, you kind of hypothesized that maybe that had something to do with like the level of autonomy and stuff that, that women gained through this process. Um, I mean, what other ramifications politically, socially, do you think that that decision had on America? Yeah, so I think that the that by allowing women to homestead, there's some other things that happen. So I think you you quite frankly get more women on the frontier. You also get more families that move together. So there's a lot of instances where let's imagine um, 
mom and dad are married, right? They move, they claim a homestead as a married couple, which they're allowed to do. They also have adult sons and daughters who claim homesteads around them. And then the family is able to consolidate that land and ultimately have a much larger operation. I think by allowing women to do this, women sort of helped their, whether brothers or husbands or dads, women were a part of creating stable farms that were large enough to quite frankly survive for more generations because they were larger and could produce more income. So I think that's one definite um, sort of influence that it had long-term. I also think that uh, my perception of, you know, South Dakotan women and probably sort of women generations down from homesteading is that there's a certain streak of independence, right? Homesteaders were striking out on their own and they were doing these, like living in really difficult conditions and they were fulfilling these requirements of the law. And it's really impressive that single women who most often weren't going to have any agricultural training, for example, were able to successfully do this. I think that for women at the time, some of them sold their homesteads and moved on. It's also true that a number of them kept their homesteads and they used them as income producing properties for the rest of their lives. And so I think it truly changed the economic reality for a number of women who took advantage of the homestead law. Professor, you... um mentioned that you've published, uh, I think, an additional paper. What, what was that paper on? So uh, just a, a month ago now, I had an article come out in the Nebraska Law Review called The Homesteading Rights of Deserted Wives, a History. And this article was also about female homesteaders, but this one was about a very specific context where husband and wife went out to homestead together husband um, abandoned, like he deserted his wife, he abandoned his homestead and, and left. And his wife is still on the homestead and she decides to make a claim for it. This is, of course, a very fascinating situation that happens quite a bit on the American frontier where, quite frankly, men would leave with some regularity. There's a great number of fascinating administrative decisions about deserted wives making claims to their homesteads. So this article I wrote goes into great depth about these, but the short version is basically that because women were able to homestead, right? Because Congress has said, yes, women are qualified. Ultimately these deserted wives could take over their husband's claim and end up with ownership over it. And I just think it's such a fascinating although incredibly small, tiny piece of history, right? I think it's a fascinating part of the homestead history. Well, one thing that I think is cool about this line of research is just, it, it you know, these, it, it's kind of these, like, battles that are occurring, I think, between, you know, like, gender roles, and you see them kind of play out, um, you know, in, in the legal realm. I, I, do you have any other plans to kind of continue to research um, either this time period in history or, or specifically, like, the Homestead Act? Yeah, I would love to keep going down this trajectory. So I think I was 
naive a few years ago because I thought I could sit down and write one article that just surveyed all the legal issues that that women confronted during the homesteading period. And I very quickly realized that there's just a, a lot there. So there's certainly other stuff that I hope to study. Once a homestead was proven up or uh, you get title to it from the federal government, then there become issues of state law and property ownership. So another huge thing that's happening in this time period in American history is we are revolutionizing the way that couples, that married couples own property. Today, husbands and wives have equal ownership in their property. That was not true in 1862 when the Homestead Act was passed. And so there were a lot of gender dynamics of, yeah, we take for granted today that women get to own property and they get to control property and have a say in what happens to the property. That simply wasn't true, right? And so I think there's a lot of interesting areas to explore of how much control do women get over these homesteads once they got title? How do we interact with the state laws governing property? Because it's all happening at a time where America's realizing that we need to liberalize our property ownership and marriage and move forward because look, women are in fact capable of owning, owning and managing property and we should let them do that. Professor, just to switch gears here um, for, for a moment before we conclude, you know, I, one thing I'd like to do in, um, on, on this podcast is obviously talk about the pandemic and how that has kind of, you know, impacted everyone's, um, you know, positions. How, how did the, I guess, pandemic and all of the changes that were made impact, you know, your teaching and, and your classroom? So I'll say I think teaching is the most important part of my job. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. And I think for faculty, right, the shift last spring sort of on a moment's notice was difficult. So because I, in my spring classes, had a lot of non-traditional students with kids who were going to suddenly be at home, I taught asynchronously. And I recorded lectures, but I also built out a ton of practice problems, right? So one of the things we do in law school is we pose hypotheticals because there's not one single answer in the law. So I, frequently what I do in class is, is I teach the rule, right? I say, well, here's the basic rule. But then we have to realize that that rule is not always easy to apply in every situation, right? So a lot of my job is, is teaching students how to think about, well, was this one fact changes and what, what do we do? And so that problem-based learning is fabulous in a classroom face-to-face, -face, much more difficult online. This fall when I got back to class uh, in person, but with some people, of course, zooming into the classroom as they needed to be out for COVID protocols and the same happening this spring, is I realized I needed to adjust how we did that problem-based learning. So I've recently started using a couple of programs a lot more that allow remote students and in-person students to all participate um, sort of through quiz questions, right? Like you answer, I put it up on the screen and you answer on your cell phone, whether you're at home or in the classroom, in order to kind of get that discussion-based, problem-based learning that's so fun about the law school classroom. I think we're making do, I think we're doing well, but I also cannot wait to have everybody back in the classroom um, looking at their faces and, and having these conversations in person. 
So do you think then, I guess, like some of the you know technological shifts that have occurred in teaching because of the pandemic, like the Zoom and stuff like that, do you think that will persist you know, after the pandemic? Is that a, is that a permanent feature now um, in higher education? I think a little yes, but I think mostly no. The reality is there is value to being in a room with people. And I think that's particularly true in a law school classroom. I don't stand up and lecture, right? I engage in dialogue with the students. And in order to engage in the best dialogue, I need to be in a room. Now, there will be some things that I continue to use, right? I learned how to use these quizzing programs, and I improved how I could do that. And I'll continue to do those programs in class, right? I'm better at using D2L than I was a year ago. I've learned more. And so I think the great thing is we all had this deep dive into technology, and the stuff that worked well, we will continue to use. But at least for law school, and I think truthfully for all of higher education, there's just so much value to being in a classroom together, to having the community in your physical building, that that's where we're going to go back to because that's the best environment for students to learn. And sort of as I mentioned about Berkeley at the beginning, right, it's the best environment for students to grow as people and learn all of the skills that they need to be lawyers at the end. Um. Professor, I've got one last question for you, I guess. Um, and we usually ask all of our guests to kind of put their philosophy hat on for just a second. You know, you've, you've obviously lived a pretty interesting life. You've traveled, um, lived in different parts of the country. You now uh, teach, you know, I, I think obviously really interesting subjects and get to engage um, in the law. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? Well, there's not a lot I know for sure. I know that I love teaching. I know that this is a job I hope to have until I retire. I know that I love my family and that I really care about community and I'm happy, right? I guess I think that's the last thing I'd say that I know. I would also add in terms of my job, I know that I have to keep learning. It's hard to say you ever know the law because the law always changes. But what we do know is that if you're going to be a lawyer or a law professor, you have to adopt the philosophy that you don't know everything and you have to be a lifelong learner. Um, no, that's a great answer. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us today and um, being a guest on the podcast, but also thank you for the work you uh, do at USD as a teacher and as an academic. And on a personal level, obviously, just thank you um, everything that you've done for me, uh, Hannah. I usually call you professor, but I'll break that code just one time. Um, you and I have known each other, obviously, for a long time, but you've been a huge influence uh, the last three years for me in a positive way and have really helped me um, professionally and academically. And it is cool. Um, having known you all of these years and now getting to kind of see you, you know, as a teacher and even learning some things about you on this podcast about like how you always wanted to be a teacher. This is your element. That's what I, I wish I could go tell that Yankton crew that we would always go hang out with. Like, I wish they could come back and get to, you know, just sit in on one law school class and get to kind of see you in this element. Um, it's been fun for me the last couple of years and I know I've benefited immensely from it. So thank you a lot. Yeah, I really appreciate all of those kind words. And, you know, I, I love being an educator and I love teaching and I uh, enjoy students and I've enjoyed you, of course, and I appreciate that you took the time to interview me today.